The realities of rationality are humbling. Know things, want things, use what you know to get what you want. It sounds like a simple formula, but in truth, it maps out a series of escalating challenges. In search of facts, we must do with probabilities. Unable to know it all for ourselves, we must rely on others who care enough to know. We must act while we are still uncertain, and we must act in time, sometimes individually, but often together. For all this to happen, rationality is necessary, but not sufficient. Thinking straight is just part of the work. Thinking it through, an article by Joshua Rothman in The New Yorker, August 23, 2021. Welcome to Delmarva today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. This is the second in our three-part program series on beliefs. In the first program, we discuss what beliefs are, how they are formed, and the role they play in our thinking and our actions. This morning, we're talking about how beliefs change and the role rationality plays in changing beliefs. My guests back with us for this second program are Dr. Adam Wood, department head and professor of English at Valdosta State University, Dr. Grant Wilson, professor and graduate program director in the Department of Astronomy at the University of Massachusetts, and Dr. Christine A. James, a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies, also at Valdosta State University. In the spirit of full disclosure, Grant Wilson is my son. We would all like to think that our beliefs, our perceptions of the world in which we live and move and in which we act, are based on principles of rationality. But according to Joshua Rothman in his New Yorker piece, the realities of rationality are difficult and not really enough. What other elements beyond rationality should we be considering? Grant, Adam, Christine, welcome back to Delmarva today. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Nice to be back. Rothman, in his article, mentions Bayesian reasoning as a particular way of thinking through problems. He says that Bayesian reasoning is an approach to statistics, but it can be used to interpret all sorts of new information. What is Bayesian reasoning and how might it be applied to changing beliefs? Grant, let me turn to you. 
to talk to us about the structures of science and scientific beliefs, how they have changed over the years. How would you describe those changes and what has been the role of rationality in aiding in the acceptance of new structures? Well, thanks. That's a, that's a heavy question to start out a morning commute with, but uh, let me give it a shot. So um, let me start uh, with um, a definition as we in academics often do. I, I just wanna start with the idea of what science is and at least as I think about it, what I teach my students at the university. Um, so I have this definition I like. Um, science is the discipline of continuously building evidence-based and rational models of reality. And um, you can substitute in that just beliefs for models. We build beliefs, but we build a specific uh, type of them because they're evidence-based, they're rational, and we continuously challenge them. And in fact, there's a whole um, sort of capitalism in academia uh, built in on challenging older professors' beliefs and being the first to, to deconstruct a belief or a model and replace it with a new one. Um, and so given that, I, I wanna give you a second definition of science <laughs> that I give my students, where uh, I'll say that science is a structured conversation. It's a conversation that we have on a, on a global scale now, which is uh, much better than even just uh, 20, 30 years ago. Um, but it's a, it's a conversation that has rules, um, very strict rules in, in the formal sense, and even in informal conversation between scientists, there are rules uh, that we abide by. And it's an ongoing conversation, one that will never end. Um, so you asked, I think, uh, how our beliefs or our models change in science, and they change all the time, sometimes very dramatically. And when, they, when the change is very dramatic, we call that a paradigm shift. Um, and uh, I should say that scientists are human. So during this conversation, when the beliefs change in a dramatic fashion, when we have a paradigm shift, it takes time and it takes effort. And just like the last time people, uh, we talked, I can say people give up a part of themselves when the paradigm shifts. And um, there's certainly an emotional aspect to it, but, but it's a social change as much as it is an individual change. And I'll just give a quick example. Um, we've known since the 1920s when Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe was expanding. We've known that the universe is getting bigger day by day by day. Um, I, was a, when I was a postdoc at the University of Chicago, I uh, was lucky enough to attend the conference uh, in 1998 when uh, Adam Reese and Brian Schmidt and Saul Perlmutter unveiled their data showing that not only is the universe expanding day by day, but today the universe is expanding faster than it was yesterday and tomorrow it'll be expanding even faster than it is today. And uh, they laid this out and said, hey, look, our data from uh, supernova show that the universe is accelerating in its expansion. And even though I was young, I was baked in enough to the idea of the standard model of the Big Bang Theory that along with many people at the conference, I sort of went, hmm, well, that'll be intriguing if it's true. And you know, we, we take these things with absolute incredulity and, um, 
and it takes a while to bake in. And how does it bake in? It bakes in through the conversations, through writing formal academic papers about the subject, going to conferences, and just as much by going out to drinks after the conference and with your friends. What do you think about that result? And, and hashing it out in the way a lot of us change our beliefs over time. Uh, that said, science is, is bound, to, like I said, by these very formal rules um, by which we have these conversations. And uh, so we make our way slowly. And I should emphasize it is slowly, but it's also filled with humility, um, with the understanding that we can't all be experts. And, and I noticed in your quote, you said from Joshua Rothman, you said, uh, unable to know it all for ourselves, we must rely on others. And that social aspect where you can be aware that there's no possible way you could know enough about every subfield, even in, in what you're doing, to make absolutely certain um, decisions and pronouncements, that's where you get your humility that allows you, gives you the ability to change when change comes. How are people at accepting these scientific changes in the scientific community grant? Terrible, because we're human. Um, you know, it, it, it really does take time. Uh, when you see a surprise in a paper, uh, you know, we, we, we read papers every day um, and, new, and out, new, new results that have been published, peer reviewed. And uh, honestly, you're always looking for what's wrong in the paper. We take incredible skepticism because not because we don't want change, but because you want to really try to understand it. And the hard parts are the, the subtleties are always where things can go wrong and lead you astray. So we're sort of professional skeptics in that sense. Um, and uh, it takes a while, like I said, and it's a very social process for these changes to step in. You might think if you, you know, think of scientists as portrayed in the media or being these cold rationalists that, you know, you get the new input, you go, oh, I guess everything I believed is wrong, moving on, I wonder what I'll do tomorrow. But instead, no, you cling to those ideas and you go, all right, what's wrong with this new data? I remember thinking back at that conference at the University of Chicago, oh, I'm sure it's dust. Dust, there's a, they're misinterpreting the supernova data because they didn't understand the dust in the galaxies that, from which the supernovas originate. But that ended up not being correct, and, and that's okay. These, these are the kinds of challenges by which young people make their names in science and by which the field progresses. Well, let me ask, uh, let me ask a, 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 another uh, direct question. We've thrown uh, around the word uh, rationality, and uh, I just... Uh, Give me a simple, and this, Adam, for you and Christine um, as well, uh, give me a short definition, uh, if possible, of uh, what you mean when you say uh, rationality or something is rational. What do you mean? Well, when I teach philosophy of science, I try to give credence to the possibility that science behaves using certain rational guidelines. And when Thomas Kuhn was doing the structure of scientific revolutions, one of the things that he ended up having to make an addendum about when it was republished was the idea that he didn't really want to make science sound completely irrational. And then there's this interesting split within philosophy of science where you have some people who take Kuhn to the extreme and they say what this really means is that science is very 
irrational and very psychological. And then there's other people who talk about the idea of the political influences that go into scientific beliefs. So the fact that science is social is probably a part of its rationality and its strength, because you have to have other scientists replicating your results to be able to say that you've really proven something or that your model works. The other thing that you could say is that it's rational to think that a scientific model or belief system is rational if it is able to be unified with other beliefs. So if you have the idea of scientific unification, you want the theories that work with the other theories that are already out there. Here's the trick though. There's always gonna be examples in science and in science history where things did not go the way that they should have and people ended up doing something for irrational reasons. One example would be the beginning of plate tectonics and the way in which we now understand things like the ring of fire and the connection between volcanoes and earthquake activity. That was something that was actually very unpopular when people first started to produce evidence of it. And part of it was because it was new younger groups of scientists and they were going against this accepted idea about what the crust of the earth was like and that it had to be stable. And so there's a kind of authority figure thing that sometimes messes up our rationality. You could also look at it in terms of broader politics. There was a controversy in the 1960s about polywater, the idea of heavy water. And the reason why it became so popular was because a number of Russian scientists thought that they had found evidence of polywater. It turned out that they really weren't cleaning up their equipment quite so well. So it wasn't really water that they were finding. It was sort of, you know, other stuff that should have been cleaned out of the equipment. But people in the United States started to publish on polywater like crazy because they were, it was the time of Sputnik. It was the time when politically we thought that we had to do whatever the leading country in science was doing. And so the idea of authority and the idea of politics sometimes just messes up what we are trying to do in terms of rationality and checking and evidence. Adam? Yeah, I, mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I would, you know, I think at least ideally the idea of rationality is based in things that we can verify, right? Things that we can sort of locate in the material world that we can uh, establish that there are concrete facts connected to a particular belief, right? So uh, again, you think about something like gravity, right? We can, we can see evidence of gravity everywhere, right? The apple that falls from the tree, the pen that rolls off the desk, whatever it is that we can verify the theory of gravity based on tangible material results, right? Uh, where other types of belief that we may decide are not rational or less rational tend to be grounded in things that are unverifiable, right? Things that are grounded in uh, an emotional response or perhaps even a spiritual response, right? Uh, we've talked about this somewhat last time, but again, we think about religious belief is grounded in something that cannot be verified, right? Um, you may say, well, I, I had this feeling, I felt like uh, God spoke to me, or I felt like this was the case, but it is utterly unverifiable in that way. And so again, I think for, for me in that sort of sense, when I think of rational thought, it is grounded in immateriality, but it is also open to new information coming along, right? So when we think about uh, sort of the Bayesian model, right? That it is predictive, but also is not definitive, right? That, that it allows itself uh, to be altered uh, based on new information. And that rationality does have, an, and this is what Grant was sort of hitting at, a skepticism that is ideally built into it, right? I believe this based on this evidence that I have uh, 
seen or have discovered in the material world, but I am open to alterations of that based on new discoveries, new evidence, whatever it is. But that for me is a grounding of rationality where again, less rational thinking uh, refuses any sort of flexibility. Um, I think of the psychologist, uh, Jonathan Barron, right, has these um, three sort of statements um, that I think are sort of interesting distinctions in terms of rational belief uh, versus non-rational belief. I don't want to say irrational yet. Uh, but so for example, rational belief, uh, think something like this, people should take into consideration evidence that goes against their belief, right? That is a rational thing to do. Huh, I, I disagree with that, but I, should, I need to consider that. Uh, it is more useful to pay attention to those who disagree with you than to pay attention to those who agree, right? Again, the sort of openness to skepticism, right? My evidence seems to suggest this, but you have some other evidence, Let's, let, let me consider that. Less rational thought perhaps, uh, might believe in these things. Changing your mind is a sign of weakness, right? And so we think about dogma, right? Now I have these beliefs and no matter what I've discovered, uh, I will not change them. Uh, they may also think, uh, less rational people may also think intuition is the best guide in making decisions, right? Uh, my feelings you know, are driving this. Uh, the third one is it is important to persevere in your beliefs even when evidence is brought to bear against them. Right? That is in some ways the height of non-rational thinking, I believe. Um, and so again, I think that, that you know, uh, Barron sort of sets up those distinctions really nicely in distinguishing between rational thinking and non-rational thinking. Well, Adam, you mentioned the term, you mentioned the term um, uh, Bayesian um, reasoning and, and Rothman mentions that in his article uh, as well as a uh, particular way of thinking through problems that uh, that scientists use when when they're dealing with issues. Uh, Grant, as a scientist, can you uh, say something about this Bayesian methodology? What do you, what do you guys do when when you're confronted with a scientific conundrum? Uh, well, I got to say that that. Bayesian inference, this idea of uh, using Bayes' theorem, and I'll, I'll come back and tell you who Bayes was in just a moment, uh, is, is really taking uh, revolutionary steps throughout the sciences nowadays. And um, for me, you know, 20, 25 years ago, you barely ever heard about Bayes. And now you see it in almost every paper uh, that comes out. So this is a methodology. It was actually developed by Thomas Bayes, who was a reverend and a mathematician way back in the early 1700s. And um, I'm going to use some of the language in, in a, a book on programming that I really like by Thomas Muth and, and a number of others. But uh, the idea that Bayes came up with is that it, you, if you take, um, if you quantify what you know, or at least what you knew yesterday, and then you get some new information and you sort of multiply what you know in a funny sense by, by uh, how likely it was that this new information would be produced by, by your belief system, then you'll get some measure of the plausibility of your belief system. Like how plausible is it that what you believe is true? And what's profound about that I'm sure everyone's taking notes and has their calculators up now. So, uh, That's right. They're writing so, on the they're writing on the steering wheel. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So, 
So what's profound about this is that the part that you took when, uh, when I said what you knew before, that has a name in Bayesian inference, it's called the prior. And what you can do is every time you bring in some new data, you can you calculate a new prior, you build you, that new data right, or the plausibility that comes from your, that new data right into your new prior. And then you get to apply that tomorrow to the next data you happen to bring in. So let me try to illustrate this with a very non-mathematical example, um, but one that's very clear. So I have my own belief system about how the universe works beyond astronomy and through the spiritual and everything. And, and um, I'll let the cat out of the bag. I'm a, I'm a pure atheist. Um, but I always wondered um, what would happen. So, so how am I a atheist? I'm, I'm based on, on all my prior experience. Now I get that your prior experience is very different from my prior experience. And that's okay, because I don't say for certainty. I'm, I just say, oh, that's where I fall. Now, if aliens landed tomorrow and they looked like us and the male aliens came out of the ship and said, um, oh, I see you were also built in, in God's image. And um, you, know, you all must know about Jesus. We had Jesus uh, 5,000 years ago on our planet and, and so on. You know, I would have to seriously update my priors. I would have to look at that and go, wait, hold on. My understanding, despite everything I knew, I thought I understood before, this new data is so compelling because an alien race is presumably an independent set of beings from us. This new data is so compelling that I must update the plausibility of whether Christianity could be correct. And that's, that is Bayesian thinking. And now in, in Bayesian inference, the, sci the, math the mathematics and the science of it, we, we actually assign real numbers and real probability distributions to these plausibilities. But, but that's the general idea. Every time we bring in new data, we go, ooh, how does that fit? We do some calculations and we update the plausibility of our beliefs. Other than the mathematical uh, part of it, Grant, what role does probability play in, in Bayesian analysis. And then we'll turn uh, to, to you, Adam and Christine. Um, what is the role of probability? And, and how does the role of probability expand to the way in which we think generally about our beliefs and, and the verification and, and um, a truth of our beliefs. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that because this is the, the role of probability is all about trying to understand our uncertainty in, in what we think we know and what we think we believe. And uh, I've, frankly, I find that that uncertainty is completely absent from news articles. And you, know, you look in the New York Times, there's very little about uncertainty. And there, it, it's uh, this happened, this happened, and and uh, so here's the conclusion from that. And that's very much not the way the scientists work, um, and the way we should address our rational beliefs. So, uncertainty in um, Bayesian statistics or Bayesian inference is carried along in the mathematics in the probabilities, and so we it doesn't make any sense anymore to say something without also assessing your, your confidence or your uncertainty in what you're claiming. Even, and, and it's funny because data that we collect has uncertainty on it. 
especially in astronomy. Um, and even the models, the beliefs that we apply to the data also carry their own uncertainty. And then that uncertainty propagates forward and finally until you get to your plausibility arguments about the beliefs. And the right thing to do is to carry that with you all the time. Christine? Well, I think there's a lot that's great about Bayes' concepts. And I think that the idea of the Bayesian turn in philosophy of science is really important, just like you've said. But then there's also a way in which there's a lot of philosophers of science who just feel very very skeptical about Bayesianism. <laughs> and I just want to share, you know, a little bit of a thought about it. You know, when it comes to the idea of the urge to try and quantify our beliefs and quantify the probability of how right we might be or how good our observations might be, that, that, that urge to quantify really makes a lot of sense because it gives us this feeling of certainty. And I think that when it comes to specifically the so-called hard sciences of physics, chemistry, biology, there's a lot of ways in which that is very helpful. And it's the kind of thing that makes the scientists be very honest and self-reflective, which is great. But then on the other hand, when it comes to certain human sciences, political ideas, economic ideas, trying to make predictions about how people will behave, I think that Bayesianism is not quite fully what it needs to be, perhaps. I'm trying to find a way of making a criticism that's sort of polite. One of the classic examples when people are first studying Bayesian thinking is an example of somebody who is given a description of a person and then they have to try and extrapolate based on their belief system what job they think this person has. And they'll be told certain specific characteristics, like imagine a man and he is very shy and rather quiet, tends to shy away from socializing with people, but he's also a very orderly and tidy person and he really likes to keep things in a neat order. Do you think it's more likely that he is a librarian or a farmer. It, it's one of those examples where you're supposed to go through this sort of probabilistic analysis of what you think might be likely characteristics for farmers and for librarians. What they say a lot of people will sort of say right away is that this person must be a librarian. And very often, people who criticize Bayesian ideas will say, well, the last thing that people heard in that description was the idea of the person being orderly and tidy. They forgot about the part where the person is not very social and tends to avoid people, likes to be alone. That might be a characteristic that is actually more closely associated with farming. So given that this person has this combination of statistics, this combination of possibilities for what they like to do, the idea that we're going to have some kind of a set assumption about what a farmer is like and what a librarian is like and that somehow the orderly nature is going to trump the less social nature, it just strikes me as being a little bit less predictive, less predictively strong than it claims to be. <laughs> let, let me come, let me come back, um, Adam, uh, to uh, a comment that Grant made about, uh, about um, uh, Bayesian uh, methodology. Uh, I, I don't think we want to um, uh, analyze and, and critique uh, Bayesian methodology at this point. But the most important thing that I think uh, uh, Christine that Grant said was that in the Bayesian methodology, it, it assumes that you are going to be open to new information, that you are going to have a handle on your old beliefs uh, or on your beliefs and information, 
and that you are going to be open to analyzing and looking at that belief. I think that's very important for our discussion this morning, that you are going to be open to receiving and measuring that information against uh, your confidence in your, in your belief. And that, to me, is the sense of probability. There may be a, 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 a sense that your information needs to be upgraded, that your information, that your belief system needs to be changed. So, Grant, you can correct me on this, but I, I'm just the sense that the important thing here is, is knowing your belief and being open to receive new information that uh, challenges and may alter your belief. But Adam? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I would perhaps add here is, you know, with, with Bayesian inference or, or Bayesian thinking, it becomes much more complicated when we apply it to culture, for example, or politics, right? That there is always, uh, I just say the reality of chaos that throws off predictions, right? Uh, you know, we can say, for example, um, you know, if we look at, for example, the rate of gun violence uh, based in the past few years, right? And we say, on average, there have been this many homicides, uh, you know, with guns in the past few years. And so we can say, all right, well, on average, it's this many. And that we can say, sort of based on that, uh, we expect it to be about the same next year. Uh, all of a sudden, COVID kicks in, right? Uh, people are locked inside. Uh, people are becoming much more insulated in their sort of little social bubbles, their little tribalism on the internet. Rage increases in that way towards those who disagree with you, right? Once people get back outside, um, does that rate of gun violence increase in a way that we could not have predicted, right? Did even something like the pandemic have a direct impact on gun violence, right? And a lot of the, the discussions that I've seen sort of going on said it did, right? That we have seen this rise in gun violence since people have started merging back outside after COVID lockdown, right? You could not have predicted that two years ago, right? Before uh, we were even aware of COVID, that would not have factored into the thinking, right? And so that there is always um, chaos that enters into the system, right? Uh, science is in some ways perhaps much more orderly, right? That, and that it, it seems in some ways to factor chaos into itself, right? Where culture, we tend to not want to factor chaos into it, right? Uh, and this is why when these things happen, again, we, we talked about this again last time, that things can become so utterly decentering, right? Um, and science has that decentering fact, right? At least again, going back to the notion of paradigm shifts. Uh, the discovery that the earth was not at the center of the universe, right? Quite literally uh, decentered us. Uh, the discoveries of Darwin quite literally decentered us from being the center of all animal life. But that there are always these chaotic moments um, that thrust the culture into new moments of disruption, right? That are utterly unpredictable, I think, uh, which is where that Bayesian analysis. Uh, I think sometimes does tend to fall flat when we think about uh, culture and society in that sort of way. We cannot always predict how human beings will behave. Well, I think, Christine, that's what you were saying with 
um, with your analysis that you gave of the of of predicting the the uh, uh, employment roles that um, the two people you mentioned might uh, might might play. There there was another aspect of of rationality that um, Rothman raises that I that I think is is crucially important, and uh, we're going to turn to irrational. Uh, beliefs in a moment, uh, but um, that was uh, the fact that as, as human beings, we are unique in the sense that as far as, as we have demonstrated, we have the ability to think about our thinking. We have the ability to reflect on our thoughts and reflect on who we are and what we are. He, he uses a 50 cent word uh, called uh, metacognition, but uh, for me, it, it's just kind of thinking about our thinking. And uh, I wanna ask you in, in um, rational uh, thought and in rational belief and the changing of, of rational belief, what role does, uh, does this thinking about our thinking play? One thing that Rothman mentions about rationality and that's, I think is very important is that he says it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition. When you think about necessary conditions, it's like it's one thing in a long list of necessary qualities. So if you want your car to start, you have to have gas in the gas tank. But there's a bunch of other things that have to be working with your car for there to be this actual event that will happen, this actual cause to effect relationship. And so when it comes to the examples that we're talking about here about irrationality, having the chance to stop and think about your thinking and correct yourself if you are irrational is so important. And what's tricky is, is that a lot of people find that hard to do, especially when it comes to self-defeating behaviors. If you have a student who is really upset about how they did on a test, getting them to a place where they can actually rationally consider how did I study, how should I have studied differently, that's a really important metacognitive skill that sometimes students come to college without, and you sort of have to help them through it. The thing that really gets me is that sometimes that kind of, you know, question about rational and irrational thinking can affect groups as well. And sometimes there's going to be examples of group thinking that tends towards the irrational, and it's very difficult to get a group involved in metacognition about how they think. You could think about that in terms of certain political issues. You could just think about that in terms of a baseball team like the Toronto Blue Jays in the 1980s went through a World Series and sort of choked on game two and never really recovered. They ended up getting into this really negative headspace in terms of sports psychology. And that kind of irrational choking behavior can happen to individuals and groups. So being able to use rationality to do metacognition and thinking about how you're thinking well, how you're not thinking well, that's very important. It's kind of a Socratic emphasize. It's, it's like Socratic wisdom, being able to admit when you don't know something and when you are not doing something properly. Well, let's shift gears. Follow up on that. No, that Grant, go ahead. The, um, you know, I, I think that's absolutely right. You can Here's a here's a neat trick I learned from um, Annie Duke, the the World Series of Poker mm -hmm. card champion. Um, Annie is fantastic, and 
she, uh, she was preaching uh, to invite people into your uncertainty as a way to sort of get a metacognitive jump on them. And she said, uh, she gave this example. She said, um, look, suppose I think uh, good, stricter gun laws are really important for society. Then if I'm going to say that to someone, I'm going to say, uh, you know, I think stricter gun laws really would help. And I think I'm about 80% confident that that's the case. And so she tries to quantify her, the, the degree of her certainty. And, you know, by taking 100 minus 80%, 20%, the, the degree of her uncertainty. And, and she said that that does three things for her. It, it demonstrates to the person she's talking to that she's open-minded. It demonstrates to them that she's credible in her thinking because she's, you know, thought enough to know, yeah, I'm about 80% on this. And it also um, invites the other person to engage in the conversation in order to say, well, you know, I think you're wrong because, and rather than having the knee-jerk emotional uh, reaction to it. Well, let's talk for a, a bit now about uh, irrational beliefs. We've, we've uh, approached the issue of rational beliefs in a very rational way. And a very, uh, it, it's been a very rational uh, discussion. But what are irrational beliefs? Is, is there such a thing as an irrational belief? Grant just mentioning poker made me think of it. There's another very famous poker player named Phil Helmuth. Uh, who once famously declared, I would win every single hand if it weren't for luck. Um, which in some ways, and I hadn't thought of this until Grant was mentioning sort of poker, but in some ways that is a fundamentally irrational belief, right? Is a belief that is so um, promoted by this guy's hubris um, and you know, sort of tossing off, well, if it weren't for luck, it's not luck, it's the, that cards are in random orders, right? It is that you can't always read someone else, but that he has this utterly irrational belief that he is perfect at playing poker, and it's only some outside factor that occasionally throws it off, right? Um, and, and so again, it, you know, for me, an irrational belief, again, is always grounded in something a priori, something before the fact that has no basis in reality that has no grounding, uh, again, in materiality, in something verifiable. Um, again, we can think of that in some ways, um, is love itself an utterly irrational thing, right? Uh, we can say that we feel it, um, but you can't verify that it exists, right? Say that we experience it, but you can't, you can't prove that it is, is a thing, right? Is that simply a term that we have put to uh, biological or perhaps sexual responses uh, to dress them up to make them look nice, right? Is our desire for companionship and sexuality, uh, for example, not quite enough for us to think that it's special? And so we invent this term called love and we put to it, right? Um, that's a very bleak uh, perspective, perhaps. Uh, explain why I'm twice divorced, but um, at the same time, it, it is an utterly irrational notion and yet we cling to it tenaciously. I, I, I want to just explore one thing that you said there, Adam, because um, 
the idea that we can't measure it is a little different from the idea that it's unmeasurable. So for example, with love, and I know there's some people that this, this really creeps them out, but you know, at some point we're gonna be able to measure the physiological changes that people feel when they experience the euphoria of being in love or falling in love. And um, I don't think any of us would doubt that those exist, that there are biological signatures, that uh, there are neurological signatures to, to someone in love. It's just that we don't have the ability to measure them yet because we, uh, we haven't developed the technology. So I don't think love is irrational. I don't, I don't believe, I'll go, all right, I'm 85% on this side. I don't believe uh, <laughs> love is going to stay in the irrational category forever. But then certainly there are other kinds of beliefs where I think not only do they, are they not verifiable through measurement, but they will never be verifiable through measurement because they're just wrong, you know, like that the earth is flat. Although it is interesting, I remember uh, speaking to a, a friend of mine a number of years ago who was a biologist who talked about how the bodily, uh, the way the body reacts to feeling in love uh, is almost identical to the feeling of utterly hating something, right? The, the blood uh, boils in that sort of sense, the heart races, you can't speak, you begin to stutter, um, you know, the, your face will get flushed, all these sort of things are in that, you know, the way that he sort of explained, we're biologically pretty much the same on either end of the spectrum. One, we talk about it being this wonderful, great feeling. The other one, we go, oh, that's, that's a terrible feeling. Hopefully, the, uh, the hate feeling fades faster than the love feeling. <laughs> Hopefully, yes. I think it really is interesting when we have examples of beliefs that could be both irrational and rational at the same time. Yeah. Like research about people healing more quickly in the hospital if they have people praying for them. And they'll do double-blind studies where they don't tell the person someone else is praying for you. It turns out that in those kinds of situations, it seems like it's very irrational, but it does seem to have a real effect. And it's the kind of thing that can potentially be quantified. It's at least verifiable in principle, because at some point one would hope that we will figure out exactly what this amazing influence is that attitudes have on success rates of different kinds. So when it comes to this idea of, you know, what metacognition and thinking about how you ought to think and what you can do, they'll talk about this in terms of teaching with having a growth mindset and trying to make sure that your students have the growth mindset where they don't react to a bad grade negatively. They react at it as an opportunity to challenge yourself and to learn in new ways and revise your studying technique. Those kinds of positive ideas, they feel really irrational to me, but it seems like there is some potential evidence for that actually being a beneficial concept for how to revise your plan of life. So what are we saying then about uh, irrational beliefs? So are we saying that uh, there's a probability that these uh, beliefs, uh, even though they are irrational, are in fact effective uh, beliefs and uh, have a value uh, that um, that goes beyond um, rationality. Like a placebo effect. Like it goes, it's, yeah. Ex exactly. It goes beyond the real evidence, but if you think it's helping you, then that's okay. I don't think we can include ivermectin in this placebo effect, though. <laughs> well, we're going to get to ivermectin in a minute. <laughs> I'm going uh, I'm going to offer that as as a little uh, as a little case study but 
uh, I wanted to uh, ask you about Chef Hawkins in his book, A Thousand Brains, talks about false beliefs. And he talks about how false beliefs go viral uh, as, as well. Um, he says that false beliefs are based on false models of the world that we carry in our head and that uh, these false uh, models are just um, uh, models that believe something exists that does not really exist uh, in the real world. Um, could you say something about um, false beliefs? Do you, do you believe that there are false beliefs? Is Hawkins right? I think that the culture is full of false beliefs. Um, and it's not, let me, let me just say, it's not surprising. And I want to go back to something I said or, uh, about 45 minutes ago. Uh, you know, it's too hard to know everything. It's too hard to know everything about one specific thing. And so we rely in a very social way, interconnected social way. And I don't mean social media. I mean, real social, the social interactions we have all the time in a web of knowledge that is all around us, that is, that is carried by the people we interact with, the books we read, the, the, the videos we watch, uh, and so on. Um, and so it is not surprising at all that false pieces of information or false models of the way the world works can get inserted. And then especially ones that prey on um, weaknesses we have in our in emotional states. And I think a lot of cons, I think all of astrology is, you know, for example, is based on exactly that. Um, so it, it's not surprising to me that I, for me, the question is, how do you, how do you deconstruct those? in people and how do you how do you reconstruct a, a world that is understandable even though you know everyone's busy you know, well, one thing another, I, I, oh, no go ahead adam i, I was just saying you know i think the the problem with the, the idea of false beliefs is that i think that phrasing is troubling because if you believe it you believe it uh it's more problem i think of false premises right um that the beliefs are grounded in a fundamental premise that is false, right? Um, that is where it gets really challenging, I think, to um, deconstruct those things, you know, as Grant was sort of saying, right? That again, if we think about uh, religion, right, sort of the prime example of this, that if an atheist, you know, Grant mentioned he was an atheist, and I'll admit to being one too, in having discussions with people who are religious, um, it's not the small details that are really get complicated. It's when you go down to the fundamental premise, right? Um, no, uh, there is a God in the beginning. There was God. And, he, you know, uh, that is that premise on which all the other beliefs are based, right? And it is almost impossible to shake those fundamental premises, right? That is, in some ways, the real challenge. And so that even though we may look at it, uh, you know, atheists may look at religion and say, well, that's utterly irrational, the structure around the premise has a certain rationality to it. It's the underlying premise that is, is seen as irrational. In that sort of way. That's really very interesting because a word that I ran across, a term 
that I ran across in Rothman's article was um, mental biases, or not, that wasn't his term, cognitive biases was, mm -hmm. was his 50 cents uh, uh, term. And um, so I think, uh, Adam, what you may be saying is uh, a number of our premises could well be built around um, cognitive biases that we have. For instance, um, there, they, they talk about the, the two uh, psychologists who developed this, um, the, I, who identified a number of what they call uh, cognitive biases. One of them is the authority uh, bias. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do you, what would you say about uh, cognitive biases? Uh, well, you can definitely see them on social media. I think it's uh, one of those things where people tend to follow and friend people who already agree with them. Most people don't have a very diverse following or a very diverse pattern when they're using social media. So it turns into a situation where they're living in an echo chamber. And confirmation bias is the kind of thing that people will experience. And one could say that when it comes to beliefs that have supernatural explanations or supernatural foundings, like a belief in a, some sort of a creator or some sort of a higher being it is supernatural so there's inherently no way to check and balance it against our real experience in the world and that makes it something that people will tend to disagree about and not really come to a resolution about one of the great things about Kuhn and the idea of the scientific revolutions is that you have to have an anomaly for people to change their belief for people to change their paradigm most of the time paradigm shift starts because there's some anomalous result that needs to be explained that needs to be reconciled and if you have belief in some kind of a divine creator then it's very very easy to sort of make general statements about how anything that happens is in line with your belief of, oh, the divine creator likes me or the divine creator does not like me. <laughs> so that kind of discussion is really interesting when it comes to a confirmation bias if somebody already has a belief system and they've had it reinforced by people who they follow and listen to. The psychologists that, that develop this um, uh, are uh, Amos uh, Tversky and Daniel uh, Connerman. And one of the, they've identified more than 15, what they call uh, cognitive biases. One of the things that struck me as I read through those biases was I said, my God, I have all of those. And uh, I, I, in, in my uh, in my metacognition, um, I thought, God, I use these in uh, in argument and in justifying uh, my beliefs. Um, so um, I let me come to um, ivermectin, which uh, you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, Christine. You know, I own two horses and I give ivermectin to my horses to deworm them. And it, it's an interesting process of uh, plunging that stuff in their mouths because they're not going to eat pills or, or take it any other way. And I just could not imagine turning that tube of paste on myself. And yet uh, people, according to the news, are doing that. So 
let me ask you in terms of un, irrational beliefs here. How can people believe? What is happening? Let me ask it another way. What is happening when people believe that taking something like ivermectin, a horse dewormer, is going to do more for them than a vaccine that has proven effective in the body so far of 164 million people. Well, one of the first things we should probably mention is authority bias. That's one of the biases that I think is involved here. And part of it is because we had two certain newscasters on a particular cable news network who advocated using ivermectin as well as some other things. <laughs> and they wanted to make sure that the word got out. And I think that they were specifically using it at the time as being a way of criticizing the FDA and the government's handling of COVID. They were using it as an example of, oh, look what they should be giving us. So it's a combination of the figure bias, as well as people looking for something that they can use to criticize a, another power structure. So how do we approach, uh, Grant, you, you raised it a, a little bit uh, earlier on by um, the way we say, uh, we might say, well, I'm 84% certain, and that opens up conversation. So follow, following on that, how do we deal with people if we are rational and want to be rational in our beliefs and see that as beneficial? Uh, how do we deal with people who want to take ivermectin, uh, a horse dewormer, uh, instead of uh, a vaccine that to some extent has rationally proven effective? So, so I, I teach a, one of my classes I teach is um, science versus pseudoscience. And uh, one of the, the sections in there is I, I teach the seven signs of voodoo science, um, which are really the seven signs that someone's trying to pull one over on you. And uh, these were developed by a physicist at the University of Maryland uh, named Robert Park uh, a long time ago. And he used it to teach judges how to, how to judge expert witnesses' testimony. Um, but one of those, uh, the seven signs, was that a discovery is pitched to the media rather than going through the scientific channels, the standard scientific channels. I think ivermectin falls under that. Uh, another one is that a lot of the evidence for it is anecdotal. And um, we should never discount the power of the anecdote in uh, being that way that beliefs get implanted into people's minds and then allowed to grow. From there, you know, my 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 wife's cousin took echinacea and her cold went away right away. And all of a sudden, everyone's taking echinacea. A lot of the herbal supplement industry is based on this. Um, but then uh, there, there are a number of others. So there, there are well-described ways for shielding yourself from false, demonstrably false beliefs or, or uh, fad, faddish beliefs even. Um, but it's hard to teach everyone this stuff. <laughs> I, I get to do about 300 students a year, and that's that's it. Well, and I think 
bring sort of hint at something that one of the challenges that we're up against, and in, in, this may not be a right term, but it's sort of popped in my head, is what I might describe as oppositional bias, right? Uh, if I prefer Coca-Cola, but I see someone that I despise drinking Coca-Cola, I will stop drinking Coca-Cola and switch to Pepsi, even though I don't like it as much, just because I don't want to be associated with what that person I despise does, right? Um, and so when we think about COVID vaccines, for example, right? Uh, individuals who tend to lean left have uh, very much leaned into COVID vaccines, right? You just kind of look at basic data of, of who is getting the COVID vaccines. And that I think that there are those who despise people on the left and go, well, if they're taking it, it must be wrong. Therefore, I'm going to take this, this deworming pill or paste or whatever it is. Um, that, it, that it's almost sort of the opposite of confirmation bias in some ways. That it's, I will, I will believe the opposite of what my enemy believes. Yeah, there's certainly a very strong institutional bias or bias against institutions these days. I'm sure we'll talk about this on the next podcast we do. But, um, you know, the institutions have failed an enormous number of people for a very long time. And it's not surprising that there's big movements against the institution. It's sad, though, because this is life and death. And here's a case where where people could get themselves in real trouble. Yes. In the opening that I read, Rothman and Grant, you repeated this, says that in search of facts, we must make do with probabilities. Unable to know it all for ourselves, we must rely on others who care enough to know. We must act while we are still uncertain. We must act in time, usually individually, but often together for all of this to happen. Rationality is necessary, but not sufficient. What else do we need? And you hit on a little bit of this. Uh, Rothman says mutual trust, mutual concern, shared commitment to reason, and to act is what he tells us. What else do we need in, in your understanding other than rationality now? I, I, since no one else is saying anything, I will just throw in, uh, I'm a big fan of the uh, metacognition uh, People call it also mindfulness, uh, self-reflection, and to try to understand where we're coming from before that thing comes out of our mouths that we sound so confident about. Um, take you know, for all of us to slow down and try to think about what what drives us is is really important these days. Rothman actually says it's key to uh, to rational to rational thought. Adam, Christine, and Grant, thank you for just a brilliant discussion. Next month, September 24, we'll present our third and final discussion on beliefs. What is the state of contemporary belief in the fields of politics, religion, and culture? 
please be sure to join us. And thanks again to our guests. And thanks to you for listening. This is Delmarva Today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. <laughs>